Do you know how crazy this election is? I've about had it with these people. Me too, Governor Kasich. Me too. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Why? Why? I got the feeling that something ain't right. Oh yeah, that's why. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Not scared. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, 93 FM WLRI Lancaster, Pennsylvania, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, on iTunes. Streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn. And of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. You can run, but you can't hide. Although you might want to hide this week. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker. Muckraker, all around, swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another uh, thrilling action-packed adventure. As we uh, await now, the we go to air as uh, the GOP candidates are gathering once again for another debate, which we will cover in full in only the way that we can here on the Bradcast uh, tomorrow. Because the debates, the debates, two two debates, the kitty table debate, the undercard debate, the uh, happy hour debate, whatever you want to call it, uh, and the main event all take place later this evening. Looking forward to that as ever, even though it's all madness, all madness. And, you know, for Democrats, Democrat, it's easy to laugh at this. It is easy to laugh at what is going on. You, you can, and frankly, you should laugh at what is going on. But don't laugh too hard, Democrats, because you got a lot of problems. And we're going to talk about uh, a few of those problems in a little bit with my guest. But uh, for the moment, until we do, let's go ahead. Let's let's go ahead and laugh at these Republicans, because, um, man, as they're gathering in uh, in Colorado, Boulder, Colorado, of all places, uh, it, it's kind of madness. They have as of uh, this morning. Well, actually, just moments ago, as we go to air, they have in the U.S. House. Uh, in the Republican caucus, elected their nominee for the new Speaker of the House to take pla- to take the place of the outgoing John Boehner. They have elected as the nominee Congressman Paul Ryan to be the next Speaker of the House. He had uh, only one challenger in the Republican caucus. That was uh, Daniel Webster, a Freedom Caucus uh, champion from Florida. But Ryan routed him 200 to 43. 200 to 43 vote in the closed door conference meeting of Republicans. However, Ryan will also have to uh, win in a vote amongst the entire House. And to do that, he'll need 218 votes. So he only got 200 within the conference. That means, well, either Democrats are going to have to vote for Paul Ryan, which seems unlikely, or 
about uh, 18 more. Well, exactly 18 more uh, Republicans are going to have to come along and support Paul Ryan. That floor vote will take place Thursday morning. At least that's when it's scheduled to take place. At which time, if Paul Ryan is elected, uh, John Boehner will uh, transfer the gavel to him. Uh, For now, Ryan, according to The Hill, has the support from most of the 40 members of the far-right Freedom Caucus. But he'll have to get 18 more of those votes uh, from the same people who both pushed out John Boehner and scuttled uh, Kevin McCarthy's own bid for the speakership. Kevin McCarthy, of course, the majority leader in the House. He couldn't even win the speakership. So we will see if they whip some votes between now and uh, and Thursday's full House vote to get the 18 that they need. It looks like they will. Uh, Daniel Webster has uh, suggested that it was time to move on and unite around Paul Ryan. He said, I don't really want them to nominate me. This is done. It's 200 to 43, Daniel Webster said. So we'll see if the uh, if 18 more votes uh, will transfer to Paul Ryan. I can't tell you if they will or not. Or, you know, they, these uh, same people don't have to vote for Paul Ryan. They can just uh, choose not to vote at all on uh, on Thursday. So that'll be fun. But it does seem like they are getting their act together. At least in the U.S. House, at least for the moment, we will see. Uh, out in Colorado, however, meantime, uh, things are falling apart. There was a tense 30-minute meeting at the Coors Event Center in Boulder, Colorado, uh, described by uh, three sources present to Politico uh, as, uh, well, as kind of ugly. Uh, some of the members accused uh, the RNC and C, uh, CNBC, who will be hosting the debate. And by the way, hosting the debate, and if you don't have uh, cable television, apparently you won't be able to watch this debate at all because they are not streaming it. Is that true, Desi Doyen? Well, they are streaming it, but they're only streaming it for folks who already have a cable subscription so uh-huh. that you have to use your login for your cable, your cable provider uh, in yeah. order to be able to watch. So, so much for Man. democracy for anybody who is not on a cable sub- subscriber. That is Desi Doyen, our producer. Throwing uh, democracy over the cliff with the Republicans at CNBC, <laughs> apparently. Uh, yeah, the, the uh, but that's the least of the problems, apparently, for these Republicans. Uh, drama apparently began on Tuesday uh, during uh, after a walkthrough at the Coors Event Center uh, when a number of the candidates accused the debate committee, the RNC's debate committee, of allowing them less than hospitable green room spaces while unfairly giving lavish ones to higher polling candidates, such as Donald Trump and Ben Carson. After touring the stage, says Politico, candidates got a peek at what their green rooms would look like. These are essentially their, their dressing rooms where they, where they prepare, where they meet with their uh, friends and family and uh, advisors and so forth before they go on. Trump, Donald Trump, was granted a spacious room with plush chairs and a flat screen TV. Marco Rubio got a theater type room packed with leather seats for him and a team of aides. Carly, Fe- Carly Fiorina's room had a jacuzzi in it. What? Yeah, it was really nice. It was really nice. There's pictures of them on the web posted by uh, someone with the Rand Paul campaign who was not very happy because Chris Christie. His space was dominated by a toilet. Oh, my. So was Rand Paul's. Uh, After the walkthrough ended, RNC officials, led by chief strategist Sean Spicer, 
and Director of Finance Events, uh, Anne-Marie Huffman, guided the 30 or 35 or so advisors upstairs for a meeting. This is ridiculous, fumed Christie's campaign manager. We're in a restroom. Paul's team also piped in with one advisor uh, demanding that something be done to remedy this situation. Late on Tuesday evening, apparently, according to the Paul campaign, the uh, uh, they had been granted improved facilities by the RNC. So the facilities were available. They just didn't assign them. Uh, to that's them, what, it, what would it would seem. Yeah. Yeah. That's what wow. it would seem. Uh, they are, of course, low. Po- they, look, Rand Paul and Chris Christie, according to the Republicans thinking here, should be happy that they're in the main event and not in the kids table. Apparently, if if Rand Paul and Chris Christie got a toilet at the center of their dressing room. Imagine what Bobby Jindal, Rick Santorum, uh, who, who are the Lindsey Graham? I'm missing one the- uh, in the kids table. uh I can't even remember whoever they imagine what they got the corner next to the boiler. Yeah, right. Uh, by the time the uh, the meeting wrapped up, those present say that RNC officials were exasperated by the whole thing. On Tuesday evening, campaigns received an email from uh, from an RNC staffer about Wednesday morning's debate planning conference call. The note said the call is canceled tomorrow. We'll follow up when it's rescheduled. So this is what's going on in the Republican Party. Now, uh, there are legitimate concerns and complaints about the uh, about the Republican debate on Wednesday night at uh, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Students are very unhappy with uh, with what happened. They thought this would be a chance for the student body to sort of participate in the democratic process. However, and this is how it was. Uh, Colorado University Boulder student Aaron Estevez Miller, 21 year old, gave an interview to Think Progress and said that the college framed the debate as a real chance for the students to have this meaningful political experience. He said in the months since then, the university and chancellor have failed to deliver on this promise. Apparently, uh, Wednesday's debate is being held in the 11,000 seat Coors Event Center at CU Boulder. And students expected some tickets would be open to some of the 30,000 university students. But instead, the RNC and CNBC originally made just 50 tickets available for the student body. Really going for that youth vote, guys. (laughs) Yes. Isn't that fantastic? And uh, so now, uh, under pressure, the RNC has increased that number to 150. So it's a 30,000 student body, uh, 30,000 person uh, student body, 11,000 seats in the Coors Vent Center. They're giving the university just 150 seats. Uh, This uh, this was Aaron Estevez Miller went on to say they're sacrificing young people's political experience to the arbitrarily defined benefit of media and exposure. People here are voting in their first presidential election. It's important that they have a meaningful experience with American democracy, and the college is not leaving that impression on young people. Progress Now Colorado is calling for at least half of the seats to be made available for students. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Although it doesn't say it outright, a recent press release, according to Think Progress, accuses the Republican candidates of being scared of the progressive student body. They are afraid of what happens if those students actually show up. If the GOP refuses to allow students to even attend a presidential debate on their own campus, what does that say about the candidates? 
says Progress Now, Colorado's Amy Runyon Harms. In a press release on Monday, the chancellor of Colorado University, Boulder, said the campus would have many related opportunities for our students, whether that's attending a watch party, participating. <laughs> they, they can attend a watch Separate, party. Separate, but equal. Yeah, well, there you go. They can go to a, a dorm room and watch it on TV. I could do that. I don't need to be in Boulder for that. Uh, participating in a faculty-led discussion of the issues. There's another opportunity for these students. Uh, or they could volunteer with CNBC's production. They can give away some free labor to CNBC. 30,000 <laughs> positions right? available to volunteer? I don't think so. Or attend a classroom presentation led by prominent journalists who are out there. One of those journalists, by the way, John Tomasic, who will be joining us uh, on the broadcast tomorrow, along with our old friend Digby, uh, for our debate analysis on this program. Uh, Tomasic, uh, great reporter, great journalist with the Colorado Independent. He sends me a note today to let me know what's going on on the ground in Boulder at this moment. He says it's just odd that this bunch of candidates at this point in U.S. history are, are debating in Boulder. He says there is a plane circling above, trailing a banner that reads Bush and Rubio Coke puppets. The nation's top climate research centers ring the campus. Remember that? That's oh, yeah. right. In Boulder, Colorado, that's the National Association. Yeah. National, uh, yes, yeah, for atmospheric research. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, they're, they're all right around there. Uh, Tomasic tells me a pot shop a few blocks away is hosting a tour for the candidates. Don't know how many are going to be taking them up on that <laughs> offer. Uh, he adds, which is to say, if Rand Paul can't make a splash here, well, then where? When? Good point. John Tomasic adds in his uh, email note to us from the ground in Boulder, Boulder Colorado, that uh, it is a long way from the Reagan Library. Where oh, they held man. The, no. Well, maybe that's the last what the, debate. maybe that is the calculation that the Republican National Committee made that why would you bother to give more than a handful of seats out to students of this, you know, bolder liberal well, city well, and university, yeah. you know, because because they assume that students sure. aren't going to vote for them. But I think that that, you know, sort of fair enough, but. Make sure that the students won't vote for them. It doesn't even give them an opportunity to, to make their case to them. Okay, so there are a bunch of lefty, hippie liberals at uh, at Boulder, uh, at Colorado University Boulder. That's fine. Then don't hold the debate there. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's all getting a little bit crazy, and it does seem to be affecting the candidates a little bit. Here was uh, Jeb Bush, uh, I think, just a day or two uh, commenting on on the circus that this entire affair has become. If this election is about how we're going to fight to get nothing done, then I don't want anything, I don't want any part of it. I don't want to be elected president to sit around and see gridlock just become so dominant that people literally are in decline in their lives. That is not my motivation. I got a lot of really cool things that I could do other than sit around being miserable, listening to people demonize me and me feeling compelled to demonize them. That is a joke. Elect Trump if you want that. Okay. That may be what they do. Uh, that was Jeb Bush just a day or two ago. But it was really Ohio Governor John Kasich who nailed it. A and we'll see if this has any effect. This was uh, Tuesday Tuesday night, I believe, at a campaign event. John Kasich, you can hear it in his voice. He has had it. He has had it with this presidential race. He has had it with his own party. 
And we'll see if any of that comes out on Wednesday night in the debate. But his remarks were kind of remarkable and make me want to say, oh, yeah, go John Kasich. Do you know how crazy this election is? <laughs> Let me tell you something. I've about had it with these people. And let me tell you why. We got one candidate that says that we ought to abolish Medicaid and Medicare. You ever heard of anything so crazy as that? Telling our, our people in this country who are seniors or about to be seniors that we're going to abolish Medicaid and Medicare? We got one person saying we ought to have a 10% flat tax that will drive up the the deficit in this country by trillions of dollars that my daughters will spend the rest of their lives having to pay off. You know, what I say to them is, why don't we have no taxes? Just get rid of them all, and then a chicken in every pot on top of it. We got one guy that says we ought to take 10 or 11 million people and pick them up. We're the, I don't know where we're going to go in their homes, their apartments. We're going to pick them up, and we're going to take them to the border and scream at them to get out of our country. I mean, that's just, that's just crazy. That is just crazy. We've got people proposing health care reform that's going to leave, I believe, millions of people without adequate health insurance. What has happened to our party? Good question. What has happened to the conservative movement? Great question. Not crazy Governor John Kasich of Ohio, of the swing state of Ohio, Hurling insults at uh, some of his uh, fellow candidates, some of uh, his fellow Republican candidates who could well be the nominee and who would have to rely on John Kasich to help them win in the key swing state of Ohio. But laugh all you like, Democrats. Go ahead, laugh. Get it out of your systems. I understand. The fact of the matter is that as much as things seem to be falling apart for the Republicans, and they really do seem that way, the party, the Republican Party, continues to hold majorities in both the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House. And thanks to gerrymandering and, yes, voter suppression, among other things, it seems very unlikely now that the GOP is going to lose their majority in the U.S. House in 2016. At least, you know, not anytime soon. They may lose the Senate, but it looks like they're going to hold on to the House almost certainly. Meanwhile, Republicans absolutely dominate control of state houses and governor's mansions across the country right now. That led one uh, quite progressive writer over at Vox.com recently to pen an article headlined, quote, Democrats are in denial. Their party is actually in deep trouble. Now, that may be true around the country, and Democrats don't really seem to have a strategy to change things all that much other than hope that there'll be another big presidential year turnout that will win them the White House. And maybe, just maybe, whoever their candidate is for president will have long enough coattails to change conditions in some of the state houses around the country. But, let me add, there is another hope. That may change things for Democrats for better or much worse in the years ahead as we enter another presidential election year. And it's a hope that, frankly, is much, much bigger than the White House itself. That story is next with my guest, constitutional law expert Ian Milheiser. Stick around for that and keep laughing, Democrats. This is your Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Please stay tuned.
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with you. All right, well, we have been talking uh, for many weeks now about how dysfunctional uh, and, frankly, how the uh, Republican Party, in my opinion, is no longer a legitimate political party. They have no governing philosophy. Uh, they you know, can't seem to find a, a, a presidential candidate. Uh, they are a disaster in political terms as far as uh, governing philosophy goes. But as far as control that they hold in D.C., in both the House and the Senate right now, and more importantly, all across the country, that's a very different story than what is generally covered. When generally we look at it and we say, oh, these Republicans are a disaster. Yes, they are a disaster, but yes, they hold an extraordinary amount of control and they probably will for quite some time around the country. And to that end, Matthew Iglesias, writing over at Vox.com, uh, sort of hit that point uh, in a recent article headline: Democrats are in denial. Their party is actually in deep trouble. He writes, the Democratic Party is in much greater peril than its leaders or supporters recognize it and has no plans to save itself. Yes, Barack Obama is taking a victory lap in his seventh year in, in office. Yes, Republicans can't find a credible candidate to so much as run for Speaker of the House. Yes, the GOP presidential field is led by a megalomaniacal reality TV star. All this is true, says Iglesias, but rather than lay the foundation for enduring Democratic success, all it's done is breed a wrong-headed atmosphere of complacence. He says the party is focused on a competition between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton over whether they should go a little bit to Obama's left or a lot to his left. Options that are unlikely to help Democrats down ballot in the face of an unfriendly House map and a more conservative midterm electorate. The GOP, he says, might be in chaos, but Democrats are in a torpor. He concludes by saying uh, the most significant question facing the Democratic Party isn't about the White House. It's about all the other offices in the land. The problem is that control of the presidency seems to have blinded progressive activists to the possibility of even having an argument about what to do about all of them. That will change if and when the GOP seizes the White House, too, and Democrats bottom out. But the, st but the truly striking thing is how close to the bottom 
the party already is and how blind it seems to that fact. Well, there's a lot to dig into there and a lot to argue about and a lot to discuss. But Ian Milheiser, writing over at thinkprogress.org, says that uh, Iglesias's piece ignores what may be the greatest looming threat facing Democrats in the years following 2016. It is not even all of the things that Iglesias outlined that I couldn't even get into yet in this uh, intro. Ian Milheiser says there is a much larger looming threat. Here to discuss that larger looming threat is Ian Milheiser. He's a constitutional law expert, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress Action Fund and the editor of Think Progress Justice. Uh, Ian's first book is Injustices, the Supreme Court's history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. And that has just been published. We'll get to that also. But Ian Milheiser, welcome back, sir, to the broadcast. It's great to be back. Thanks so much. Always great to have you here, sir. All right. I'll bite. What is that larger, quote, looming threat that the Democrats are facing even larger than their lack of control uh, of state governments and of the uh, the House of Representatives, thanks to a gerrymandering and so forth. What is this looming threat that uh, lies ahead for Democrats? Well, I mean, if, if you, could, you could probably guess it from the title of my book, it's the Supreme Court. I, I mean, a big reason why Democrats are so far underwater when it comes to state legislative races, when it comes to House races, is because of the Supreme Court. You know, the, the Supreme Court has ordered the federal, the, the, the lower federal courts not to even look at partisan gerrymandering cases. They're not allowed to even to consider them under, under existing Supreme Court doctrine. They struck, the Supreme Court struck down the Voting Rights Act, which ushered in the, um, much of the wave of voter suppression laws we've seen, we've, we've seen in southern states. They've refused to strike down voter ID laws, which, ex, which do nothing except for make it harder for certain constituencies, mostly constituencies that prefer Democrats to vote. Um, this term, they seem likely to take a hu- strike a huge blow towards unions mm-hmm. and ma- make it very difficult for unions to fund themselves, or at least public sector unions to fund themselves. And, of course, unions aren't just very important for workers' rights. They also are an important backbone of the Democratic Party's political infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you, you know, Matt is exactly right about the grim position that Democrats are in at every level except for the presidential level. But those problems come from the fact that at times the Supreme Court isn't enforcing the Constitution, and at other times it's mangling the Constitution. And many of these problems could be solved if we had a Supreme Court that, um, you know, was prepared to give us fairer elections. And, well, and that's one of the cases that he makes, is that the Democrats don't really, not only uh, are they not in power, they don't seem to have a plan to get into power, and all of these uh, plans would have to come up against what the Supreme Court has already done, as you lay out in your your piece, Ian. The future of the Democratic Party will be decided by the Supreme Court, is the headline there. And... Um, so your argument here is 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 basically what that what uh, Iglesias says is absolutely true. Democrats have no plan, et cetera, et cetera. They need to figure that out. However, unless they can uh, wrestle back control from the right wing control of the Supreme Court, then none of those plans would actually matter, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm making I guess I'm making two arguments. I mean, one is that the plan is to get control back of the Supreme for the Supreme Court. 
You know, the second part of it is, is that if the Supreme Court gets even more conservative, then you're looking at, a, at an apocalypse for the mm-hmm. Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, just to give you some grim numbers about the situation we're in right now, yeah. a while back I ran the numbers on the current House we have, given the gerrymandered match you have in many states, given other, you know, redistricting issues that mm-hmm. favor Republicans. And Democrats would have to win the national popular vote for the House by about seven and a quarter points in order to get a bare majority of uh, of the House of Representatives. It's very hard to do. You know, to put that in perspective, in the Republican wave in 2010, Republicans only won by 6.6%. So if Pelosi's caucus, if the Democratic candidates in 2016 do exactly as well as Republicans did in 2010, which was a huge year for Republicans, Republicans still keep a majority in the House of Representatives under, under the current map. And that's all thanks to gerrymandering. That's, I mean, thanks to gerrymandering. It's also, to a certain extent, thanks to geography. Because, you know, part of the problem is that Democrats tend to live clustered together in cities, and Republicans tend to live more spread out. And so if you draw your maps, to maintain local communities. You often wind up with all the Democrats being crammed into cities where they have districts that are 80, 90 percent Democratic. And then in the, you know, in the rural regions, you might have districts that are maybe 50, 55, 60 percent Republican, so fewer Republican votes are wasted. You layer gerrymandering on top of that, though, and things become absurd. I mean, you know, just to throw a few more scary numbers here, um, Virginia has a Democratic governor. So mm-hmm. the last time they had a chance to run a statewide election, they'd say well, they, not only a Democratic governor, it's a Democratic lieutenant governor and a Democratic attorney general. Mm-hmm. But in the Virginia State House, Republicans enjoy a 67 to 32 supermajority. Um, in Pennsylvania, there's also a Democratic governor, but the mm-hmm. Republicans enjoy a 120 to 83 majority in the House and a 30 to 20 majority in the Senate. So, you know, in these states, absent some sort of redistricting reform, um, I don't think it's actually, I don't know that it's actually possible for the Democrats to capture the, 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 the state legislature there, no matter what type of election. And- and are, are, are those numbers, those lopsided numbers, where you've got the, you know, a, a Democrat controlling the state and Republicans uh, enjoying super majority, huge, right. you know, numbers? Is that due to the local uh, gerrymandering, local redistricting issues that are purposely being, you know, carried out to help keep right. Republicans in power? Is uh, or, or is it what you say? The uh, and what, uh, frankly, Richard Vigory, uh, the right. uh, the right wing conservative, ha- interviewed him a couple of days ago. He, he said that you know Democrats and Republicans are self separating or self gerrymandering right. the way they're you know Democrats in the city and so forth. So what is to blame? And are you suggesting that it is the Supreme Court that has made right. it difficult to challenge uh, the, that local redistricting? Yeah. So I mean, the problem with redistricting is both. It is both a problem that geography helps Republicans, and then on top of that, intentional gerrymandering designed to lock in Republican success mm-hmm. um, makes matters even worse for the Democratic Party. Um, so, you, you know, both of those are, are playing a role. At the very least, the Constitution requires intentional gerrymandering to be struck down because it's a First Amendment violation. You're discriminating against voters on the basis of their viewpoint. You can't do that on the, under the First Amendment. Um, now, I think that... Says who? You know, Wait, 
says who is that is, is that a, is that a supreme court uh, is that case law or, or where is that in the supreme well uh, among other things says justice kennedy i mean what, what, what is odd about the way the court has handled this is that the last major opinion justice kennedy wrote on the topic he agreed with what i just said that yeah there's a there's problematic first amendment issues when you engage in intentional gerrymandering but then he said but you know what these cases are so hard this is actually what he said these cases are so hard that i don't think we should be dealing with them right now oh brother yeah <laughs> that's and now uh so essentially what you're saying is that everything needs to be flipped at the uh, at the supreme court that we're looking yeah, well, at yeah go ahead yeah i mean what i'm saying is like the situation democrats find themselves in you know, it's due to a, you know, a number of problems layered on top of the, mm-hmm. on top of each other, many of which are at the fault of the Supreme Court. You know, gerrymandering should should be struck down. It hasn't been because of the Supreme Court. It's due to the Voting Rights Act being gutted, so a lot of states that previously couldn't enact voter suppression laws now can. It's due to the Supreme Court not striking down some of the more common forms of voting rights, mm-hmm. uh, voter suppression laws. And, you know, when you layer all these problems on top of each other, I mean, voter ID laws, for example, you know, Nate Silver, the, the numbers guru over at, at, at 538, estimated that in the 2012 election, I believe that a voter ID law, he estimated, would give a 1.2 um, percentage point advantage to Mitt Romney mm-hmm. in every state that had one. Now, I mean, 1.2 points isn't an, isn't an earthquake, but it sure ain't nothing. Right. You know, I mean, there's a lot of elections that are th- that are that close. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and of course, he was talking about uh, an average across, uh, you know, nationally, as I understand it, or yeah, at I mean, least I, in each I, state. I should be fair. She was talking specifically, yeah. I think, about the state of Pennsylvania okay. and what he thought okay. would happen in Pennsylvania okay. when, when he wrote that. But, but, I mean, you know, so, like, if that gives them 1.2 points mm-hmm. and gerrymandering gives them, you know, you know, some degree of advantage in the House races— mm-hmm. And not having the Voting Rights Act allows you to do things like enact the comprehensive voter suppression law that that the North Carolina legislature enacted. Mm-hmm. I mean, after a while, you, you know, you you add a point here, you add a point there, and it becomes extraordinarily difficult for the Democrats to win an election, no matter how successful they uh, they are in in convincing the voters. Um, under the rules as, as, as they are designed. And the, the only solution I see moving forward for Democrats to solve that is that, we, you know, I mean, I don't want a Supreme Court that's going to be biased in the other direction. I mean, I, I think that the job of the Supreme Court is to, is to uphold the Constitution, and if the Constitution is not on the Democratic Party's side, then the Democratic Party should lose. Right. But I also think that this Constitution has very clear things to say about when people try to rig elections to disadvantage certain voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, and is the job of the Supreme Court to say no to that. And so many of the decisions we've had, the decisions in the uh, the voting rights case you've, you've referenced, have come down to a 5-4 to four decision uh, where you've had some rather dubious opinions, uh, frankly, uh, you know, from, from some of these folks like Scalia and, and others. You point out in your article now, then, uh, that we are looking for the next president, uh, whoever is the next president, Republican, Democrat or uh, anything else, that they may have uh, the next president may have as many as four different justices that could uh, that may need to be replaced. Uh, uh, Justices Kennedy and Scalia. 
uh, on the right will both be in their 80s during the next presidency. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer on the left uh, will be 83 and uh, 78, respectively, when the next president takes office. So, um, you know, we hear a lot, Ian, uh, every four years. I I hear this. People hear this. uh, They say, oh, well, you may hate the Republicans. You may hate the Democrats. But the most important thing is the Supreme Court. And. We can't let the other party, you know, whichever uh, side you hear saying this, we can't let the other party take the White House, no matter uh, how much you might dislike their candidate, because they get to, uh, uh, sup- you know, appoint the Supreme Court. In this case, is this year different as you see it? Uh, is that argument different this year? Is there more to that argument this year yeah. than there is in the past? Because I, yeah. I do hear it every four years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. I think it's an especially strong argument for two reasons. I mean, one is the reason you mentioned that whoever wins this race, this presidential race, could have as many as four seats, which is an unusually large number of seats to flip in one presidential term. Um, the other reason why is, frankly, the conservatives, conservative lawyers, have gone off the deep end. I, I, I mean, you, yep. you know, you might remember this case from a while back called King v. Burwell mm-hmm. that was just decided in June, looking to strike down the Affordable Care Act, and right. the, 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 or at least to gut most of it, much right. of it. And the, the theory of this case is that most of the text of the Affordable Care Act does not count. That was the theory. It was if you read this one line of the text, it mm-hmm. seems to lead to the Affordable Care Act not working, so we should read that one line right. and ignore every other line of the law, including the ones that define the words that are used in that one line that they, want, that they wanted everyone to focus on. And three justices signed on to that nonsense right. theory. Yeah, no, no, and, no, and you're not exaggerating because that was the case that you know it, it had said in one section that the uh, that the exchanges must be run by the state or something like that, right? Uh, or they uh, referred to state-run exchanges, and they said, "Aha, state-run exchanges. That means all the uh, exchanges that are not run by the states are no longer valid, and we can throw away that two thousand-page law because of this one." And and it was a ridiculous case from the start, but it was taken quite seriously all the way up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue, the specific issue in this case, there's a line that referred to an exchange established by the state. And the idea was that the, the, the Obamacare exchanges in 37 states that are run by the federal government weren't allowed to receive the subsidies that mm-hmm. allow people to buy health insurance because they were not established by the state. They were established by a federal government. Right. The problem, I mean, there are many problems with it. The biggest problem with it is that the word exchange is defined in the, in the law. And it's defined such that any exchange, regardless of whether it's run by the state or federal government, shall be uh, an exchange established by the state. It is deemed to be an exchange established by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, a, you know, it was a nonsense lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Three justices signed on to it. And what scares me about that case, I mean, obviously I care a lot about people having health insurance, but if you're willing to sign on to that, I don't know that there are limits to what you're willing to sign on to. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's not just that that case there that the dissenting position was wrong. It's that if you are willing to sign on to the dissenting position there, I can't predict the next piece of nonsense that you're going to sign on to. Um, and that should be really frightening. I mean, that's why I said at the beginning that if the Democratic Party loses this election, it could be the apocalypse for them. Because if you have five Alitos, if you have five justices 
who are going to behave like the Cartesian demon and thwart them <laughs> at every at, at every turn. Yeah, you, you know, w- what does the party do at that point? Well, and you would also have, uh, even if they weren't I- insane, uh, if you lost uh, Ginsburg and, and Breyer and they were both replaced by a Republican president, you are now talking about a Supreme Court that is seven to two. Uh, uh, right wingers, uh, or at least you know, Republican appointees to Democrats, uh, and that's you know, in in a, in a case where the appointees aren't insane, and I think you make a very good case that yes, we have very good reason to believe that uh, the next justices appointed by a Republican president will be at least as far to the right as your Scalias and your Alitos and your uh, your Thomases. Uh, and that is a scary uh, scenario, whether you're a supporter of the uh, Democratic Party or not. Um, Ian Milheiser, got just a, a few minutes here left, uh, and I want to make sure to, to hit your book, because I think that obviously it ties in to all of this. Uh, your new book, Injustices, the Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Uh, tell us about that book and, and how that really plays in, I think, to what we are talking about uh, today and this uh, nightmare scenario that, uh, that looms ahead for Democrats, potentially, if they cannot hold on to the White House. Sure. So I mean, the book is a 150-year history of the Supreme Court, and it shows how through almost all of that history, the Supreme Court has been a very malign force. I mean, it's done terrible things throughout our history. You know, if anything, the current court we have now that's brought us things like Citizens United and struck down the Voting Rights Act is actually a much better Supreme Court than what we've had through most of our history. Really? I I discuss in there a time when the court struck down federal child labor laws and doomed children to work in coal mines and factories and cotton mills for a generation. I I discuss in there um, a case where a woman was sterilized against her will, and the Supreme Court said that was fine. Um, I discussed how the Supreme Court acted as the agent of union busters, how it struck, you know, cases where it struck down the minimum wage. I discussed the threat that the Supreme Court once presented to civil rights. Um, and this is how the Supreme Court behaved for almost all of its history. So, like, what, what scares me when I talk about what the future could look like if you have five leaders on the Supreme Court, I'm not talking about some, like, hypothetical thing that's never happened before. Mm. I'm talking about basically the Supreme Court returning to the way it had always been for many, many years of American history. Mm. What how, what turned it around? Could you talk about the Lochner era? Yeah. And that was, uh, of course, the the era when when many of those child labor laws right. and so forth were were uh, overturned. Um, what turned it around? What brought us back to uh, let's call it reason? Yeah. Uh, and and now I guess you fear we could lose what we have gained. That we could go back to a Lochner era. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that turned it around was the Great Depression. It, it was that up until the, the late 1930s, the Supreme Court had enforced a kind, I mean, at least from like the, the late 1800s through the late 1930s, the Supreme Court had enforced a kind of libertarianism on the country where we couldn't have child labor laws at the federal level, we couldn't have many labor laws at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Supreme Court was very aggressive in maintaining a um, 
you know, in preventing federal and, and state interference in you, you know relationships that mattered a lot to wealthy people. Mm-hmm. And finally, the Great Depression happened, and Roosevelt came along, and he said, "Look, what we are doing right now is not working. And you, you know, if, if we are going to get out of this." We need to be more aggressive. Our government needs to be more aggressive. We need to try new things. We need to be, um, you know, we need to find new ways to stimulate the economy. And what Roosevelt did worked really well. But, I mean, it, it was something that the Supreme Court fought very hard, and Roosevelt fought very hard against the Supreme Court mm-hmm. um, to implement. Well, they blocked and a lot of what he did, of what he was attempting to they, do they, with they the did New indeed. Deal. Yeah. yeah, and I think what turned it around was, I mean, it was the simple fact that the, de- the Depression thrust the nation into such a crisis that when a le- leader like Roosevelt came along and said, look, this is not working, we've got to try things that are radically different than what these jokers on the Supreme Court have let us do, um, the American people were very receptive to that. You know, what, what worries me now is that we are extraordinarily polarized. You know, we are, we are living in a world where basically you have two different universes of voters who have two different universes of facts. Mm-hmm. And I think that many of the people who, um, you know, many of the more conservative voters are living in a universe where they believe that Barack Obama has thrust us into a crisis akin to the Great Depression. <laughs> and, you know, if you believe that, you're going to want to do things that are radically different than the way that we've been doing things, and you'll be happy to have, as many of them are asking for, the Supreme Court implement that agenda for you and try to make it permanent, because once they declare something unconstitutional, it's very difficult to fix that. Wow. Uh, scary. You, you, you've used the word, I think, scary three or four times during this conversation, and now you have succeeded in scaring me. Uh, check out Ian Milheiser's uh, piece at Think Progress. Uh, the future of the Democratic Party will be decided by the Supreme Court. He makes a very good case, even though it's a case that in some respects we hear every four years. He makes a very good case that uh, this year, it may be different, and I suspect we'll continue talking about that case o- over the next year. Uh, and then check out his book, Injustices, The Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Uh, we'll put a link to that uh, on our website at bradblog.com. Ian Melheiser, uh it's always helpful uh, talking to you about these issues, and I look forward to doing it again soon, sir. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ian. Okay, a quick break, and we are back with, uh, oh, maybe we'll get to this uh, Zimbabwe elephant story, uh, and Stephen Colbert and Meat is Murder. All of that straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. minutes here on today's Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with you. Once again, we will have our full, complete GOP debate coverage tomorrow on this on this program with uh, Heather Digby-Parton from Salon and Digby's Hullabaloo and from John Tomasic, who is on the ground uh, today, tonight for the uh, for the GOP for the GOP debates in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, looking forward to having uh, John and Digby joining us for 
full debate analysis and snarkitude following uh, following tonight's debate. Um, in Zimbabwe, cyanide poisoning has killed 22 elephants in Zimbabwe's Hwang, I don't know if it's Hwang, Hwange National Park. The Zimbabwe National Parks and Wildlife Management Authority said on Monday, this brings to 62 the number of elephants now poisoned by poachers in the South African country in October. 62 elephants killed. Rangers found the carcasses of the elephant in the park's Cinematella area on Monday morning, National Park spokeswoman uh, told the AP. Again, it is cyanide poisoning, said the spokesperson, who said the poachers got away with three ivory tusks. So they killed 22 elephants to get away with three ivory tusks. Uh, we're now trying to check how many elephants had fully developed tusks because babies are among those killed. The rate at which we are losing animals to cyanide, uh, she says, is alarming. Many other species are also dying from the cyanides used by poachers to target the elephants. We're appealing to people in communities close to national parks to cooperate with authorities. In early October, the parks reported three incidents in which 40 elephants were killed by cyanide poisoning. Three were killed in the Kariba area of cyanide put in oranges. The rest were killed in the uh, in the national park. Um, so they're 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 leaving out. So they're putting oranges out there for the elephants to eat, laced with cyanide. Right. It's all due to the worldwide ivory demand, which is based mostly in China. And even though the United States and China have worked together, they created a new compact just a few months ago to reduce demand in China and launch a big ad campaign in China to sort of tell people, hey. Ivory ain't so great. You're killing all the elephants. Uh, it has not uh, had quite the effect that one would hope. In 2013, more than 200 elephants had died from cyanide poisoning in the National Park. Park age, Parks Agency is hoping that uh, trained dogs from South Africa and the deployment of drones will help tighten monitoring in the vast park. Uh, in this uh, wildlife-rich country. On Monday, the National Parks also announced that over the weekend, authorities at Harar Airport, International Airport, seized 173 kilograms of ivory. That's about 380 pounds. 380 pounds worth $43,000 that was about to be smuggled to Singapore. Three Zimbabweans and a Malian, uh, uh, Malian national were arrested over the smuggling bid according to the park. So, uh, man, I hate that story. Uh, you know another story I hate? I can only do this quickly because I want to get to this Colbert uh, business. But uh, you know this GMO thing that comes up all the time? These uh, uh, propositions. Genetically modified organisms Correct. and propositions to label them. To, exactly. So These consumers can they, choose. So they can choose. The labeling would say uh, this food, uh, this product contains genetically modified uh, uh, organisms or, or however they would describe it so so an informed public can decide what they want much of the world already has this as I understand it yes it's just the US that's not allowed to have it and so this comes up on uh, on, on propositions initiatives bills all the time uh, we had one out here a year or two ago that uh, looked like it was going to pass and then it didn't out here in California there's some questions about the results of that election that we have covered on this program nonetheless whenever it comes up uh, the, the food manufacturers 
Monsanto. Uh, who are some of these other Pepsi, Craft, uh, General Mills? General Mills put put in millions and millions of dollars to say, no, we don't want this. It's going to raise the price of your food. You're going to have to pay too much money uh, if we're forced to add this to the labeling. Well, in the in the meantime, I was in the store the other day. There was a row of paper towels there, specially marked for Halloween. Not the paper towels themselves, but the packaging for Halloween. And uh, what is it? Bud or Bud Light has been advertising now. They have cans, special cans for each and every uh, football team in the NFL. This drives me crazy. So the, the manufacturers complain about this cost of putting on a notice saying that there's genetically modified uh, crap in this uh, thing. And then they're, you know, they're more than happy to change their labels anytime, all the time, if it's better for if they feel it's better for marketing. So this has nothing to do with the price of labeling. Right. It's a completely idiotic argument. But most people don't really notice or think about the fact that they can redo their labeling anytime because they do their packaging every single season for every single holiday. So it ain't that much trouble. No, it ain't. And it ain't idiotic. It's a scam. It's a scam to keep them from letting consumers know what is actually in their product so anyway just had to get that off my off my chest today and now i'm going to let stephen colbert uh close out uh, the rest of the show here uh because i'm so angry i'll just let him uh give us all a laugh on the way home stephen colbert from last night's late show with stephen colbert a shocking investigation has found that after testing 75 brands of hot dogs two percent of them contained human dna <laughs> That's right. Now, the report doesn't specify the source of the human DNA. Is it hair? Is it fingernails? Did a lonely factory worker stay late one night and seduce a sausage casing machine? <laughs> they didn't label that, did they? Could your pig in the blanket have a bun in the oven? Who knows? <laughs> Folks, you're welcome for that image, by the way. Folks, this news completely changes America's love affair with the all be frank, or should I say, the all frank beef. <laughs> and the sad meat news just keeps on coming because today I heard something that was a grade A bummer. Bad news for bacon lovers and lovers of a lot of things. The World Health Organization has ruled that bacon, sausage, and other processed meats can cause cancer. It put processed meat in the same danger category as cigarettes and asbestos. What? Smoked meats are as dangerous as asbestos? Well, there goes my plan to insulate my attic with jerky. <laughs> How can cured meat be bad for you? It's got the word cure right in the name. <laughs> this is sad. So sad. I live for meat. I have, and this is true, I have a two-pound slab of bacon in my fridge at all times. I've got to. I'm the father of two teenage boys. <laughs> the only way I can get them out of bed in the morning is to fry up some bacon. That's what the kids call waken and bacon. Or something. That smell. <laughs> you get that stuff sizzling on the pan, it makes them float down to the kitchen like a cartoon hobo following the smell waves from a pie. But the thing that really gets my goat, if I can even have goat anymore, is the way vegetarians reacted to this news. Because using the hashtag smug vegetarian, which is redundant, by the way. <laughs> They got all yeah, veggier than thou on Twitter, saying things like, 
Ha, I'm always right. Now I have proof. See you, bacon eaters. And mwahahaha, red meat causes cancer. Like we didn't know that already. Sorry, meat eaters. Oh, ha, ha, ha. I get it, vegetarians. When you see your fellow human being suffering, it's funny. But heaven forbid I should eat a shrimp. You are aware that an ear of corn has a better chance at forming a coherent thought than a shrimp, right? <laughs> Have you ever had a conversation with a shrimp? It's almost as boring as talking to a vegetarian. <laughs> and I hope... <laughs> I hope you're comfortable on that high horse you refuse to eat veggies. Cause you got me. Slap on the cuffs, Officer Tofu. Eating meat is bad for you. Of course, I don't engage in that kind of petty Schadenfreude. <laughs> so it brings me absolutely no pleasure to tell you that the same hot dog study I mentioned earlier also found that 10% of vegetarian hot dogs contain meats. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know that time you thought you tasted something flavorful? That was the meat. <laughs> All right, keep in mind, right? Right? Am I right? And keep in mind, not just any meat, because in two-thirds of all vegetarian hot dogs, they also found human DNA. <laughs> two-thirds! Tofu dogs are people! They're people! <laughs> Thank you, Stephen Colbert. You know, I spent many years as a vegetarian, so nothing against vegetarians. Although, when I was a vegetarian, the one thing I, I had a really hard time giving up, bacon. So there you go. And now you can't even have bacon. Go figure. All right. My my thanks to uh, Desi Doyen, our producer, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, Ian Milheiser of Think Progress, and, of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is always greatly appreciated stop by our website if you missed any portion of the show you can download it as ever at bradblog.com you can also drop me email with your thoughts on anything and everything and maybe i'll read them on the show so be careful what you say my email address is bradcast at bradblog.com you can also find and follow us on the twitters and the facebooks at the brad blog all right that's it debate coverage tomorrow until then find me at bradblog.com i'm brad friedman good luck world hey.